Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines new season on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Anna Lazarus. This week, we take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current thought leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. This week, as talk of municipal politics fills the airways, we invited a few people to come talk to us about municipal challenges, the political context of this election, municipal finance, and process modernization. Our first guest, Matt Elliott from City Hall Watcher, breaks down the major issues of this election and its political context. Next, we hear from Dr. Enid Slack about municipal finance before we finally welcome mayoral candidate Chloe Brown to talk about red tape and creating efficient infrastructure. Our first guest, Matt Elliott, is the creator of the City Hall Watcher newsletter. He's also a Toronto-based freelance contributing columnist for The Star, CBC Toronto, Toronto Life, Spacing, National Observer, Signal Toronto, and many others. Well, thank you for uh, coming on today. So to start us off, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, your experience with City Hall and municipal politics, specifically in Toronto, and then we can go from there. Sounds good. Yeah, I am Matt Elliott. I've been covering City Hall for uh, more than a decade now. Started just as somebody who had a, a nerdy interest in what was happening and uh, you know wrote a blog over the last number of years. I have been a columnist for the Toronto Star and I also publish a newsletter called City Hall Watcher. I'm just very fascinated by the ins and outs of how policy is made and city hall has been great for that because you know unlike the provincial and federal levels you really get to see how everything comes together um how the sausages gets made basically there's not a lot of stuff that happens entirely behind closed doors so it's been you know it's a fascinating place to look at from that perspective like how does something go from an idea to uh, a policy to a bylaw so bringing up transparency is perfect it's a great segue into uh, our first question here. So we can't really talk about mayoral elections without talking about John Tory and our mm-hmm. mayor for the past eight years. So first, how would you assess his track record? And then kind of looking broader at the whole council and their track record, would you say they managed to accomplish a lot of their promises from their respective platforms in the last four to eight years? Uh, I mean, with John Tory especially, I think you have, it's, it's challenging to nail down what his platform and promises actually were. I, I think in a lot of ways, if you look at when John Tory was elected in 2014, uh, it was on this promise that like he was just going to uh, sort of calm things down. We had Rob Ford before him. It was a very chaotic time at City Hall. I remember in 2014, John Tory actually like had like a code of conduct pledge where he was like, I'm going to show up to work every day and things like that, you know, really basic stuff. And on that, I think he has succeeded. You know, the temperature has was turned down. You know, the sort of really rigid ideological battles we had at City Hall under the, that term have not really been the case under the two terms of John Tory. So that I would say is, you know, something that he can take credit for as a, a success. Where John Tory has struggled is with some of like the bigger like legacy project stuff, you know? So John Tory ran in 2014 with this big transit plan called Smart Track going to be open by 2021 and have, you know, all these stations uh, across the city. And if you look at what Spartrek is now versus what it was then, 
he hasn't really delivered on that, you know, and over time, he's also made similar projects. Uh, he proposed the Rail Deck Park, big downtown park that also ran into trouble uh, surrounding ownership. Uh, so I, I do think, you know, John Tory is an interesting sort of case study admires because he has succeeded in some of the sort of smaller operational stuff that he promised to do. But in terms of like the big things that mayors like to have where it's like, why will a mayor be remembered in, you know, 50 years? That's the stuff that he's really struggled with. And I mean, council is obviously part of that. The mayor is, you know, one vote on council. But I, I think even though the mayor has a very good track record of winning votes on council, it's interesting that he still has struggled to actually translate his bigger ideas into action. Would you say he's choosing the votes he's he's bringing to council in the sense to keep that to inflate that record kind of higher? Because I think we we saw this this year the mayor kind of had votes go his way almost all the time. Is that because he's just not taking in controversial voting? Yeah, I do think the mayor doesn't like to lose on the floor of council. So if there is something that he knows he doesn't have a vote for, he will hold it back. We saw that on the issue of multi-tenant housing or rooming housing over the last year or two, where you know the mayor knew he didn't have the votes to do what he wanted to do, so he was going to hold back on that. So that is definitely something where you know he's not necessarily the kind of person who wants to really get into some really ideological battles on the council floor. He'd rather wait until he knows that he has the votes to get something through, which is a strategy and, you know, different mayors have different strategies, but that is definitely the strategy Tory has taken uh, as far as council stuff goes. But I mean, also the other dimension of it is like the mayor can't get a lot of this stuff done, especially the big like legacy project stuff without also getting the province and the federal government on side when it comes to funding and various permissions and things like that that need to happen. So I, I do think in that sense, like what we've seen from Tory is that he's willing to sort of toss aside whatever he might want to do and work with the, the Queens Park and Ottawa to advance their priorities. Um, you know, I think he would call it compromise. But if you look at transit, especially, you know, Tory was very willing to sort of say, yeah, I ran on Smart Track. It was my plan. But, you know, Doug Ford has come along with a different plan. And I'm just going to jump on that one and say, OK, like, let's let's work together and get that to happen. So I, it's interesting. I mean, compromising is part of the job. But I think people can rightly criticize Jen Tory for being like too willing to like <laughs> jump on a compromise. OK. Bringing you back to this election, what have been the major policy issues that have come up in the news, either because the candidates are talking about them or because Torontonians want to hear more about those issues? I think there's like two main things. So housing is a, a big, big issue and housing affordability. Uh, I think it's something that, uh, you know, became very pronounced during the pandemic as People looked and realized, you know, okay, yeah, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but housing prices are still going up uh, very, very sharply uh, for young people, especially who, you know, live in Toronto now in their 20s and are looking ahead to the next few decades of their lives and coming to the conclusion that they just can't afford to stay in the city, uh, I think has been a really hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. And it's also like... Um, dispiriting like there's there's all kinds of uh, negative effects that come from this idea that we're going to be losing this population of younger people um as far as you know who's actually going to work at 
these jobs and who's going to eat at our restaurants and who's going to do all this stuff. Like, you know, a, a healthy city economy needs people of all ages. And uh, I really think that has come into focus through the housing issue. Um, we can talk a bit more about like who actually has workable solutions for it, but uh, that's the one big issue. And the other one would just be, I think this election, there's been this sort of like mounting realization that the city just kind of looks shabby, like people walk around and uh, things like the the garbage bins that always seem to be overflowing or broken or both, uh, is, I think kind of an iconic symbol of where we're at right now with the city. Um, I, you know, the mayor and incumbent councillors will point to the pandemic challenges and say, you know, this is just sort of a hangover from that and we're going to get back on to having a, a more well-run city. Other people would point to, you know, it's been uh, 12 years now of conservative-leaning mayors that have really pushed to squeeze every dollar they can out of every budget. Uh, and, you know, maybe this is a result of that. So uh, those two things, housing and just sort of uh, is the city broken, I think, have really come into the focus as the, the two main issues of this election. All right. Uh, you also mentioned uh, actually looking at what the candidates are proposing. So it, let's let's take housing. Let's start with that. What mm -hmm. are the policy options right now on the table from the candidates? Are they feasible either from a budgetary uh, stance or even from a bureaucratic stance do we have the manpower to do them yeah i mean there's uh, there's not a lot of difference between the two major candidates if we look at john tory and look at gil panelosa uh they are saying a lot of the same things when it comes to uh you know making it more permissive to build in the city so you know looking at the areas where basically the zoning says you can only build a single family home right now and saying okay maybe we should build like a duplex or a triplex or a multiplex or even you know let's go nuts and build a mid-rise apartment building in some of these neighborhoods where technically that's not allowed right now um so we're hearing similar things from uh both uh you know all the uh, leading mayoral candidates, I would say, on that. Um, I think the criticism of Tory would be, you know, you've had the job for eight years, why hasn't it been done yet? Um, and then, you know, there's also like a, a delicate balance that happens in politics as well, because I think if you talked to some of the people running for council uh, in these areas that are zoned for single family residential only, uh, you would hear from them that, you know, that when they talk to people at the door, they don't want that to change. So there is that dimension as well, like the nimbyism, not in my not in my backyard stuff. Um, but for uh, you know the the I think it's been gratifying that you know we haven't really seen like a candidate for mayor with any real profile come out and be against that. You know, it's nice to see some agreement there. Um, but the other side of it is, you know, especially in our economic environment today, John Tory has gone all in on this idea that the city can make land available, provide some incentives for private developers. And, you know, people will build various types of more affordable housing that way. Uh, that was, you know, economically feasible when the numbers worked out as far as interest rates go to make it uh you know, profitable for a company to come in, or at least for them to break even, uh, you know, in this new economic reality we're in, I do think we need to start hearing more about like direct funding of affordable housing from governments. So uh, we've heard a little bit about that from some candidates, but I feel like a lot of them are still sort of in this older, you know, pre-inflation mindset of we just need to, you know, change the zoning, allow for some permit new permissions and, uh, it will all just come to pass. And I'm, I'm not convinced that's the case anymore. 
I just want to pick up on something you mentioned about candidates going to door and trying to keep their neighborhoods down to single family homes or even duplexes, yeah. triplexes, just smaller, just going against this trend of high rises. Mm-hmm. That was one of the reasons uh, that strong mayor powers were supposed to be important and those veto powers. So we we wanted to stop councillors from being able to um, essentially just vote against high rises in their neighborhoods. But so just I guess this would be more of an opinion on your end. But do you think this the mayor would be incentivized to use that uh, that power just as he wants to do the same thing? Right. I, I would see him being incentivized to also say no, like my community also prefers uh, to have single or two family homes, uh, mm-hmm. especially given Tory's stance on um, property taxes. I could say how that would maybe make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could see it. I mean, that definitely was, I think, the rationale behind the veto powers and some of the other strong mayor stuff is uh, as a tool to get around some of this NIMBY sentiment. But I've always I've been a bit concerned about like this growing idea from some pro housing circles that we just need like to give uh, governments various tools to like overrule the whim or wishes of other levels of government or our people or whatever, because ultimately, you know, like this is a a democracy and like politicians need to answer to voters. Right. So for John Tory, he could say, okay, in this, you know, in a hypothetical instance, I'm going to use my veto power to uh, overrule the the wishes of some councillors and allow for development, all hypothetical, but, you know, could happen. But like John Tory, wants people to like him you know like he needs people to vote for him um you know maybe it's different after this election should he win because he might not be planning to run again but for these other politicians uh you know he might have somebody in mind that he wants to succeed him like it it does come down to this idea where politicians want to do popular things so i've been a bit concerned with some of like this this you know housing stuff where it's all about density and things like that which i agree with it would be great but like we there does need to be this realization that people need to do the work to make it popular. So you need to be able to go to somebody, you know, knock on their door and say, yeah, I know you're concerned about your neighborhood. I know you are worried about the idea of having like a massive condo built next to your house or whatever, but like it's explain to them why it, it's not going to be like this terrible scenario they have in their head. It's actually going to be good for the city, bring more people to the city, good for the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm just not seeing enough people willing to do that work uh, this election. It's so I'm hoping that we start to see more of that uh, in the future. All right. So thinking back to this election campaign, which mayoral candidate would you say surprised you most? Why and, Uh, and how did they do that? Uh, Chloe Brown, I think, has been really interesting as a, a mayoral candidate. Was not super familiar with her or her work before this campaign, but I do. You know, I talked a bit about housing as a, as a major issue, and a lot of the reason that's become a major issue is because of young people. And you know, Chloe Brown is a younger person. Uh, it's been great to get her up on stage with you know some of these older candidates uh, to provide that perspective because I really think uh, you know if you are somebody who is 50 or older in this city and you've owned property for a long time, uh, it's challenging to get yourself in the headspace with somebody who's in their 20s or 30s even, who, you know, is looking at the housing market and saying, like, how exactly am I supposed to get in on this? Like, you know, you look at the median salary in the city, you look at the median home price in the city, and it's like the math just does not make any sense to me at all. So uh, what I like about uh, 
Chloe Brown is that, you know, she's been the, the president's, you know, we haven't had enough mayoral debates, but the ones that we have, uh, she's been in both of them and has just sort of really embodied that, uh, I think, pent up frustration people have with this idea where it's like, you know, this is not, this is something that's been building for a very long time. A lot of the incumbents, you know, in the mayor's office and on council have been around for a long time. And it's like, what exactly are you going to do about this? If we have a housing crisis, let's treat it like a crisis. Um, so that has been a, a very nice surprise from this election because, you know, I just like the idea that every municipal election, we get some voices who, you know, come out of unexpected places. And it's like, oh, this is is really uh, needs to be uh, said. It needs to be heard. Yeah, that's great. I also thought she she did really great at the last debate. Um, going back to the last debate, they had five of the 31 candidates, not everyone. But from the majority that was there, they all agreed there was too much red tape at City Hall. Though it was quite clear that all the candidates defined red tape as different things. Um, mm -hmm. Have you seen ways in which a current council may have attempted to cut down bureaucracy and barriers? And if not, has there been an opposite trend towards over bureaucratizing processes? Yeah, I think the pandemic was actually, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-pandemic. I was not a fan of the pandemic. <laughs> Let's make that clear. Uh, but, you know, there were things that came out of it that you could call, you know, at least interesting, maybe even good. And one of the things at City Hall that was interesting and maybe even good was the fact that during the pandemic, it was suddenly like, oh, we don't have time to like have six community consultation meetings and an online survey before we install a bike lane on you know dundas east or a bunch of other places where they install bike lanes or you know we don't have time to go through like a extensive you know process where we hire consultants to determine whether it makes sense to allow people to put like restaurant patios and parking spaces and things like that like a lot of stuff happened in the pandemic you know just incredibly quickly relative to how things normally happen at City Hall. And, you know, a lot of that was because normally there'd be people at every step saying, you know, we got to talk to these people, we've got to have another report on this, we've got to have a council or committee meeting before we make this happen. And during the pandemic, it became like, we just don't have time to do that. And even in a lot of cases, like, it's just not feasible to do those kinds of consultation events right now. Um, so they made it happen. And I think that was, you know, there were cases where they might have worked a little bit too quickly and did consider all the aspects of various changes. But I think sometimes it's better to just like get something out there, try it, see how it works, and then adjust as you go versus trying to consider every eventuality uh, before you make anything happen. But at the same time, I'm not sure that's really stuck around. You know, I was hoping we would see more of, you know, a realization like, hey, we can keep some of this, this spirit alive after the pandemic. But I've seen a lot of the, you know, red tape, if you want to call it that, or bureaucracy or whatever, come back after, uh, you know, as the pandemic has sort of receded into wherever we are now, um, which has been disappointing. I, I do think, you know, people talk about wanting to cut red tape, but one of the challenges is that you know, politicians like the opportunity to weigh in on stuff. So, you know, one of the best things we can do to cut this red tape or bureaucracy is develop processes where like it doesn't need to involve the politicians. You know, the politicians define the policy and then the policy just happens. So you don't have a case where like a counselor is weighing in on every application for like a restaurant patio or a liquor license or, or whatever else. But they don't love that idea. <laughs> like, you know, people get elected and they like the opportunity to uh, put their two cents in. And that includes the mayor as well. So 
I think that's always going to be the tension is that it's very easy to sort of say I'm against red tape because it's this like nebulous concept. But when you actually start talking about specifics, you know, you'll get politicians saying, well, I would like a chance to, you know, uh, have uh, get a heads up on that and get an opportunity to say whether I think it's a good thing or a bad thing before it happens. So, uh, you know, it's it's way more challenging in practice than it is when it's just like a question on a debate stage. So. This has me wondering when the council was cut in half by uh, Premier Ford, Mm -hmm. did having more people create more bureaucracy because you had more people wanting to weigh in on the issue or had it the opposite? You had more people that either way had to discuss the issues, but at least you had more people working on them. So things would pass through quicker. Was it? Yeah, I I think like the, the challenge was when council was cut, the processes basically remained the same. So you have still have a bunch of processes that require a counselor's office to be involved at various points, you know, whether it's on development or permits or whatever else. There's lots of cases where like a counselor needs to be informed and, you know, because of various the way things are written in terms of, you know, what triggers a, an appeal and an objection, like there's there's these places where counselor involvement is sort of built in. And when you had more counselors, yes, you had more people who were, you know, getting involved in saying things. But now you have, you know, still the same demand for counselors to get involved, but they are stretched really thin, right? So you've ended up with a process that is basically the same as it was before in terms of, you know, red tape or bureaucracy, but you now have like double the demands, at least on counselors. So it's just added, I think, uh, a extra layer of delay in some cases because counselors are just can't get to everything or you know chaos in other cases because counselors are you know need to need to be involved but are not able to sort of get all the information that they probably should have before they make themselves involved so yeah i don't i don't think it's led to any real streamlining because there was only they only did like half of it right like okay you, you got rid of some of the politicians but the other side of it is you need to like simplify and streamline these processes and that hasn't happened yet all right so jumping into other challenges for the council they're gonna have to balance the budget when time mm-hmm. comes so the elected council will have to deal with about a one billion dollar deficit Are any of the candidates talking about this? What are the plans on the table to address the books, if there are any? This is my biggest frustration with this whole campaign period is like if, yes, there are issues that, you know, people care about going door to door and we should talk about those issues. But the the biggest work of the new, you know, new mayor and council after this election is going to be the the budget like how do you solve this budget it is a real humdinger of a riddle you have to find a billion dollars uh, somehow to to make this thing work and i mean it's it's a two-part problem too because the city is facing a deficit for the current year budget uh which the city is not allowed to run a deficit so you know they made some assumptions about oh the province and the federal government are going to come with all this covid money uh, like they did, you know, the past couple of years, and that will patch over the hole we have in our budget. That has not come to fruition yet. You know, maybe there's a chance that, you know, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau will feel extra festive around Christmas time and say, oh, here's some extra money for you, Toronto. But that's a, a hell of an assumption to make. And if that doesn't happen, you know, that's a, that's unprecedented waters for the city to be swimming in. Like, how do you fix that without, you know, running a deficit, which again, the city can't do. 
then you have to turn the page and figure out how to do a budget for next year, uh, starting in January. And that's, you know, going to be another major challenge because, you know, D, if, if the province and the city don't come together, oh, hold on one sec. Sorry. Um, if the province and the city don't come, uh, don't deliver this year on emergency money, it would be very foolish, I think, to assume that they would suddenly change their mind in 2023. And, you know, you could make an assumption that there's going to be provincial or federal money for uh for toronto so you really need to start thinking okay like we only have so many levers to pull at city hall as far as you know balancing budgets go either you're talking about significant property tax increases either you're talking about significant cuts to services and capital programs uh or you're really hoping that you can get some extra money from other levels of government which again is is not something i think you can bank on um, so I just wish there was more sort of acknowledgement that this is the situation. Instead, you have sort of the standard thing where politicians running for office will say, you know, if I elect me and I will do X, Y, Z. And it's like, I think a lot of those things you're promising are good things. But like at this point, I'm not even convinced the city is going to be in a position to deliver the services we have now, much less new ones in the next term. So uh it's it's just a very strange election because like literally it, the house is on fire and everyone's outside and like just talking about like this would be a great spot for a park and it's like no yeah i agree but the house is on fire like let's 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 deal with this the, the inferno over here um so so very strange um i expect after the election we'll suddenly get like a bunch of like oh wow i didn't realize how bad it was which is you know kind of silly because it, it's obvious how bad it is it's just nobody really wants to talk about these things during a campaign so have has this been a trend of historically having these high deficits or well, at least we know what the story can carry deficits but having these huge gaps right before uh you have to table your budget and you, you talked already about the ways we can address this but if this is a trend why haven't counselors kind of picked up on it and tried to be more proactive it's definitely been a trend in the sense that every budget cycle that i've covered has started with a, a scary sounding number of you know, at least $100 million, sometimes much more than that, where it's like, oh, our budget is not anywhere close to balanced, and we got to figure out how to, to make it balanced. Um, but I mean, the reason that's happened is just because like, you know, fundamentally, if you look at the amalgamated city of Toronto, which is, you know, 20 plus years old at this point, there's never really been a case where you could look at it and say, oh, that city is financially sustainable with its obligations for the services it needs to provide and the revenues it's allowed to collect. That math has never worked out. Um, so there's been a lot of efforts over the years to just sort of like patch over things. And, you know, so you'll get cases where, uh, you know, you'll use one-time funding from the, the province or the federal government to patch over a hole in your budget. Um, you will use uh, revenue from, I mean, the only real move that has ever been made to address the city's sort of structural fiscal framework has been uh, under Mayor David Miller, who introduced the vehicle registration tax, which only lasted a few years, and land transfer tax, which is still in place today. And that land transfer tax, that tax on, you know, property transactions in the city has been, in a lot of ways, the city's savior, because without it, you know, the financial problems would be so much worse. Uh, in a lot of years, it's brought in way more than budgeted, like hundreds of millions of dollars. It's been the thing that's been allowed the city to just keep on keeping on. 
And I mean, there's really worrying signs that that is also no longer something that city's going to be able to count on as you know the market changes. So uh, that's a, a major red flag as well. But you know, it it really does just come down to like it's it, there's no real way to to solve this riddle. I mean, there's been lots of attempts over the year. Rob Ford came in and said, "I will solve this problem." by, you know, finding all these savings across various departments and, you know, looked and looked and looked for some savings and really couldn't find anything substantial. Like just the reality is that the city does not have enough revenue to provide the services it's supposed to provide. And until somebody really takes that that bull by the horns and solves that problem, this is going to be a recurring thing at various levels. So, you know, some years it'll be a couple hundred million dollars budget gaps. Some years it'll be like, you know, we're at right now where it's like a billion. And uh, I, I, but I wouldn't expect it to change until something, you know, changes. So have you seen either current mayor or candidates talk or do uh, anything to reach out to provinces or federal government to try to put in place more permanent uh, fund transfers to kind of address this issue? Yeah, I mean, John Tory has talked a lot about it. And, you know, the times I've interviewed him, we've talked about this idea where, you know, a lot of the support that the province and federal government provided to Toronto and other cities during the pandemic, you know, would not be, uh, you know, if that became a normal thing, that would not be like an outrageous uh, amount for a, a province or federal government to provide to a city. If you look at other cities in North America and around the world where they cities generally get more support from higher levels of government. So I do think there's a really good case to be made that the city should be getting more uh, predictable annual support from other levels of government, but especially on transit, which I mean, Toronto is like unique among big cities around the world for how much of transit is is funded by fares and by the municipality with very little in operating funds coming from anywhere else. So really good case for it. But I mean, the challenge is like, ha- there's the sort of moral case, ethical case, like civic case, but then there's like the political case. And that's always been the challenge is, you know, what does the uh, a prime minister or premier get from giving more money to Toronto? And it sucks. I think that it just comes down to like a like political calculation like that. But, you know, there's a lot of demands on various levels of governments for to fund various things. So often it does come down to like a just basic electoral calculation. Um, I think there are ways that the mayor and council could put more pressure on levels of government. I've you know, been critical of John Tory for being somebody who's willing to jump to compromises and not necessarily willing to really fight as hard as I think he could fight for, for some things. And you know, maybe in the new term, given how dire the city's financial situation is, we will start to see more of John Tory the fighter. Um, because I'm just not convinced that sort of like this compromising, let's have some meetings and talk about it approach is going to work when you look at the scale of what Toronto needs. Yes. So kind of collecting my thoughts, we've, we've, we've talked about a lot of things here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I'm kind of thinking about, you mentioned a little bit electoral uh, participation and the calculations that are done at other levels of government and just to bring it back at our level here in Toronto, who's watching this election? And who do you think is most likely to vote on Monday? Not enough people are likely to vote on Monday. Uh, that has been something that has been, uh, I think, sad about this whole process. You know, we've talked a lot about the politicians, but 
They're also, you know, I've covered, uh, you know, two municipal elections uh, as like a, a full-time journalist, 2014 and 2018, and then this one. And in 2014, there was uh, just a real like level of enthusiasm and interest and you know, at the mayoral level, at the council level, there was a lot of excitement. Uh, in 2018, it started with a lot of excitement uh, because there was going to actually be an expansion of the number of seats on council, would have been more new faces elected than, uh, you know, in the city's history had that gone forward. Uh, then that changed and it became more of a focus on, you know, what Queen's Park was doing to Toronto with the cut to the size of council, but there was still a level of engagement. Uh, the level of engagement for this election is low. And I think it's continuing a trend that we saw in the provincial election, which also, you know, which saw very, very low voter turnout. I think the voter turnout for this election municipally will be lower than that even. Um, and, you know, I've been trying to figure out what it is exactly. I think there's something to be said that, you know, after uh, the pandemic, people are just not really willing as much to turn their minds to politics. You know, there's a lot going on, you know, for some people, it's just like, Hey, we can actually get out in the world again. The last thing I want to do is have to think about uh, politics. Uh, there's been a lot of elections over the last few years. Um, you know, we had a couple of federal elections and the provincial elections. So I, I've heard from lots of candidates knocking on doors that they go to a, somebody and talk to them about the municipal election and the person says no I already voted like in the spring I voted like I, you don't need to talk to me I'm done and people are like no that was provincial uh this is municipal but you can see why it you know there could just be some sort of collective burnout with with the political process I also just think like people might be at the point now where they have to be convinced that you know it actually matters um I, I like if you know, does casting a vote on Monday translate into meaningful change for the city? I think some people are cynical about that. And that makes me sad because absolutely, you know, municipal government, especially is the government you see when you leave your house, you see it in the street in terms of, you know, every little thing, whether it's, you know, the pain on the crosswalk, uh, the timing of a traffic light, um, whether a streetcar or bus or subway train shows up when it's supposed to show up, all these things are municipal. And all these things are basically on the ballot on Monday. But uh, I think in some ways we sort of just need to get back to basics and, and talk uh, about what, you know, our city does and why it matters. I also think, you know, there is sort of this built in expectation that John Tory is going to win again. Polls show that to be very likely. So uh, it's just hard when you have that sort of feeling of inevitability in an election versus, you know, you can imagine an election with an open seat for for the mayor's job. And I, I, I do hope when we get to that again, there's there's more excitement and enthusiasm in the city. So just taking that cynicism, why has there been so little organized opposition to John Tory? Why hasn't there been kind of an uproar from the population? We've talked about, you know, we've had the past eight years. We're constantly seeing these budget gaps. We're seeing the same issues come up. We're still talking about transit and housing issues. Why hasn't Toronto kind of organized and, and tried to offer yeah. solutions? You know, that's that's a damn good question. Um, I, I asked it myself a number of times. It's very strange to me that I think if you talked to the average person on the street about, you know, the state of their city and because uh, I do think like this year, especially, it's really become clear, like you can sort of, the city feels a bit broken when you, you walk around and look at things. And 
at the same time, you know, even though I feel like people are picking up on that and that's registering, uh, we are looking at a scenario where the incumbent mayor gets swept back into office, you know, pretty handily, which is not the way it's supposed to work. Uh, you know, if people aren't happy with the way their city is being run, then theoretically they look for change at City Hall. Um, but I, I think, again, like you, first of it all, you have this idea that, uh, you know, the cynicism about whether the democratic process will actually lead to any meaningful change. Uh, there's like this sense of think of defeatism where it's like, it, you know, nothing's going to matter. Like this is just the way Toronto is, uh, which is really disappointing to me. And then you look at the opposition side and, you know, I think, uh, one of the things that happened when council was cut is we saw a lot of like the rising stars on the left uh, leave council because of burnout. They're generally younger than uh, John Tory, certainly. And, you know, a lot of them have young families and the job became very, very challenging. So, you know, you look at some of the gaps that we are going to have on council, you know, uh, council lost Kristen Wong Tam, for example, council lost Mike Layton, council lost Joe Cressy. Um, for various reasons, but all, you know, pretty similar reasons when you actually look at it. And it's like, okay, you know, under Rob Ford, there were these downtown left-leading councillors that were willing to sort of name themselves the opposition and uh, work against the incumbent mayor. Uh, you know, we've had some of that during John Tory, uh, the, his first term especially. Under his second term, that opposition has sort of faded out and isn't really there. Uh, a lot of the people who represent the downtown, you know, and or, and or are on the left will be new people elected on Monday. So, you know, some of the work I think that needs to happen is like sort of rebuilding that that coalition of, of people who could conceivably, you know, succeed John Tory as uh, a left leaning standard bearer. Uh, who that's going to be is definitely to be determined. Um, but, you know, there there needs to they need to find a way to sort of be a city councillor, not burn out, and also think about how they can be an effective opposition. And that is a tall order. Yes. What are some resources you would recommend for listeners who kind of want to start learning about municipal elections, maybe understanding the the infrastructure around it, how things work? Oh, um, I, should I, can I say myself? Um, yes, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I do. I, I have a newsletter called City Hall Watcher, which has provided all kinds of election resources uh, for this campaign. Everything from, you know, looking at who's donated in the past to, to various candidates. So you can sort of trace the influence money has. Uh, I do some work on lobbyists and the influence lobbyists have at City Hall tracking their movement. Even basic mm -hmm. things like, you know, if you're curious whether your incumbent councillor has shown up and voted, you know, on every vote, <laughs> what their attendance record is like. I have some data on that as well. So that's uh, cityhallwatcher.com. And then, you know, the Toronto Star, which I also contribute to as a columnist, <laughs> but, you know, their press gallery or their the City Hall gallery uh, is, is second to none as far as City Hall reporting goes. So, you know, the coverage there has been really good. And there's a resource called the Vote Compass, which will let you sort of plug in your positions, compare them with your uh, the positions of the mayoral candidates and council candidates, which can be super useful if you're just looking to get a sense of, you know, where you align with the people running. I also want to give a plug to an outlet called The Local, which has done some really good profiles of people running for council and also has a, a candidate tracker as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, check out the, the Local if you haven't, because they've done some really good work online. 
thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, no problem. It was fun. Once again, that was Matt Elliott. We will continue our discussion with Dr. Enid Slack. For those who are just tuning in, welcome to Beyond the Headlines. Remember, you can join us in the conversation by tweeting at us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. Our second guest is Dr. Enid Slack. She is the director of the Institute on Municipal Affairs and Global Governance at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy here at the University of Toronto. Hello, Dr. Slack. Hi, Anna. How are you? Good, good. Can you start us off with your background? Okay, so my name is Enid Slack, and I'm the director of the Institute on Municipal Finance and Governance at the School of Cities at U of T. And we work on the financial situation, the fiscal health of cities and city regions in Canada and and in other parts of the world as well. That's awesome. So I'll try to keep my questions to fiscal health in that sense. So this new council that's going to come, that's going to be elected on Monday and that's going to come into power soon is going to have close to a billion dollar deficit gap to close. I was wondering historically, how has City Hall balanced the books and have you seen governments kind of drag on such a big gap in the past? Well, every year at budget time, uh, the city looks at budget pressures and uh, it often is in a situation where the revenues are not sufficient to meet the expenditures. But by law, municipalities in Canada have to uh, balance their operating budgets. And so every year they go through the same uh, kind of deliberations where they are trying to uh, make revenues and expenditures equal. And that, of course, means either cutting back on expenditures or raising revenues And so it happens all the time. I think this year, in the past few years, COVID has changed things um, because the city has had to make some additional expenditures on on housing and homelessness, on social services, on public health, um, on IT. But at the same time, the revenues have fallen. So property tax revenues have continued uh, but user fee revenues have fallen, and particularly transit fare revenues. So during the height of the pandemic, or sometimes we say the depth of the pandemic, um, ridership was down um, on transit and by 80 to 90%. And of course, transit fare revenues fell as well. And so it was difficult to balance their budget. There, there were gaps in the last couple of years. And um, the federal government and the provincial government came in to fill that gap. But going forward, it's not clear that that money is going to be there. So it's it's a real challenge now for the city to try to balance their budget. Are there ways in which the city can be proactive in the future, either for raising revenues or, you know, cutting costs? But I'm kind of more interested about raising revenues. What are other places they can go pull additional funds to make sure that there are less of patchings that have to be done at the end of the year. Well, cities are very limited in Canada. Um, the city of Toronto levies a property tax. It levies user fees. It has a land transfer tax and it receives money from the federal and provincial governments. So it can only work within you know, the taxes that it has. Now, under the city of Toronto Act, they have some other possibilities. They can levy a vehicle registration tax and You may recall we had one at one point in Toronto, and then we didn't. Um, There's some other smaller taxes they can raise, but the revenues of these 
taxes are fairly small. And so I, I think what we need to think about is whether cities in Canada, cities like Toronto, should have access to other sources of revenue, like, for example, income taxes and sales taxes. So how do we fare when we compare Toronto to other municipalities? Is this a running issue that other municipalities are experiencing to have like really large deficits or have they been able through their their revenue raising schemes kind of breaking even? Well, cities in Canada, uh, you know, are all under the same, uh, well, I mean, each province has their own legislation, but it's pretty similar across the country. And, and so uh, particularly during COVID, those cities that have a, a major transit system were hit the hardest because of those revenues declining. Um, but again, you know, Canadian municipalities have limited room to move in terms of raising revenues. We can look at other cities around the world, cities in Northern Europe and Scandinavian countries where uh, they're able to levy income taxes. Some U.S. cities uh, levy income and sales taxes. So, I mean, other cities have more options. And, and, you know, the literature shows, and there's some studies, at least during the COVID period, that suggest that those cities around the world that had access to different kinds of revenues, you know, not just the property tax and user fees, but income and sales taxes, uh, fared better than those that, that had limited sources of revenue like we do. To pivot a little bit, a few of the candidates mentioned the possibility of uh, adding a vacancy tax. How big would that be? Do you think that would have a significant impact fiscally for the city? Well, we are going to be implementing a vacancy tax in the city. And again, that that's not so much about revenues as changing people's behavior, right? That's really about people not leaving their, their uh, houses idle. It's about renting them out. Uh, and making more housing available. And um, if they do that, then of course the vacancy tax won't bring any revenues in. So it, it's really um, more about changing behavior and less about bringing in revenues to plug that deficit. Very interesting. Uh, and my last questions, unless you have any more comments for me, is do you have any resources that our listeners can point can be pointed to just to learn more about uh municipalities, particularly fiscal municipal issues? Well, I would go to our website, imfg.org, and we have lots of research papers there. There are papers on fiscal health of cities. There are papers on other tax sources for Canadian municipalities. Uh, we have a Who Does What series, which, which talks about what should the province be doing? What should local governments be doing? And then how do you pay for it? And we have a series that includes, you know, papers on housing, economic development, um, and, and other topics. So the, our website has a lot of material on uh, cities and their finances. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Our third and final guest is Chloe Brown. She's worked as a policy analyst across all sectors, connecting government employers and service providers to create solutions for public service and clear pathways to opportunities. She is also one of this year's mayoral candidates. All right. So hi, thank you for joining me today for this interview. Thank you. Would you like to start by giving us a bit of a background, who you are, why you're here today talking about the election with me? 
Okay, so my name is Chloe Brown. I am currently working during the day as a policy analyst at the Future Skills Center, where I have a portfolio of projects that are currently for, focused on the future of work. And what that means is digitizing some operations, processes, looking at new ways to do credential recognition, and just supporting a new way of doing things as we look at automation. The reason why I'm running is because as a millennial, I see so much opportunity in advancing working class voices, technology, and democratizing systems so that all people can like participate and perform in the future of work. Currently, management and you know the John Tories of the world have an idea of how things are done, and I really believe that that's slowing down what could happen. And the only way for us to push past traditions and the things that we know and what makes us feel safe in our comfort zone is by taking a risk. And that's why I decided to run because I saw this window of opportunity. And I also saw that our house is on fire. You know, sometimes you just got to take that risk and jump out the window to get help. And this is what this is for me, getting help from my fellow students, residents, and trying to push the needle on what needs to happen to end the crisis in Toronto. It's a great mission. So what would you believe the city's priorities should be? Well, one of the big things that I've been pushing for is changing the way that public boards are run. From Toronto Public Health to TTC, the representation on our public boards is predominantly like older executives, former executives, current executives. And that's really tilting how our public services work towards corporations versus the working class. And I really believe that the solution for this comes from Germany where they use this thing called co-determination. And what it does is that it sets public boards for 50% workers, 50% corporate representation so that there's a quality and diversity of opinions at the public board to decide operations, programs, services, etc. And I stand by this because I honestly believe that there's too many people in the corporate suite telling the shop floor how to do its job. There's some times where that's useful, but now that we've had this explosion of technology, they've become micromanagers. And it's slowing up the process because instead of trusting employees to do their job, they're micromanaging them because they don't trust the technology that they're using. And this is something that isn't, it goes beyond policy. It's about updating our current structures so that they reflect the realities of our tools and the environments that we work in. It's about updating. It's about removing. It's also about just putting power back into residents' hands so that they are informing policy. It can't just be me, the mayor, hiring a consultant group to do this. We have civil servants that could be taking surveys, making better use of data to create better services. So yeah, it's not just one thing. It's more like taking everyone back to the table and feeding everyone and having a potluck of sorts. So another major challenge the future mayor and their council will be facing is the huge budget deficit or budget gap that's going to have to be closed. If you were elected, what steps would you take to closing that gap? So John Tory has actually amassed a war chest of revenue from the for the gardener, from the city building fund, and he's put money away for his projects. And that's why I find us in this deficit, because the money's not being used effectively. So by canceling the gardener rebuild, 
by having a land value tax that actually includes all landowners, there a lot of people don't think about who's not paying property tax, and that's charities, it's nonprofits, it's churches. And there's an opportunity to actually capture the value and revenue that we've been missing by having fairness in our tax system. So canceling projects, having a land value tax system, also ensuring that parking revenue is going towards road redesign instead of funding other projects is really important to me because when we think about transit, yes, the TTC runs and like it doesn't run the best, but our roads are also not designed for the volume of people and users that are on it. So even when we think about electric scooters, I did not think they would become a big thing, but we also need to build infrastructure for them. We need to regulate them. We need to have a system of like where all the bikes are and how many are there in the city because pedal bikes and electric bikes have different needs and we should be building for that. Yeah, so that's where I, (laughs) that's where like my stance on revenue, it's there, but it's just, we need to find better ways of using it. That's, I think that's really interesting because it kind of ties into my next question really well, which is, you know, cutting down red tape. Where do you think the red tape is? How do we cut it? Okay, that is actually a great question. So when it comes to organizational change, one of the things that I would like to do within the first three months is just reorganizing the departments, getting rid of John Tory's public appointees, like create TO. there's so many open doors. He created so many programs to do the job of city planning and the real estate department that already exists, that it's created so much duplication that has resulted in redundancy. And this is where I start talking about red tape, where it's like you have one person that can do the job, but they need to ask nine people before they can do it. And this is the type of corporate bureaucracy that has come into public services that has taken money out of investing into communities and put it to Deloitte. So it's about shifting our priorities about who we empower to do small, medium-sized projects in their communities versus hiring a large firm to do all the projects. Because when we think about the fact that Canada is about 97% small and medium-sized enterprises. But when we talk about contracts, they're always going to the bigger contractors. That is red tape in itself as well, because it's like you're underutilizing your talent. You've made such a large project that no one else can get in. So it's about breaking down a lot of the overbuilt departments that John Tory has made to reward his loyalists for us to get back to actually employing the right people to do their jobs. And I use this example of Tracy Cook, who is now the city manager of infrastructure, even though her background is in policing. That is red tape because it's like you've put someone in a position of leadership that they're not qualified for. And I think a lot of us as millennials come up against this when we're trying to introduce new ideas to management who may not be ready, but moreover is afraid that you'll take their job with your bright idea. And we can't operate in this place of fear when it comes to innovation, because yes, things will be lost, but that's the consequence of creative destruction. In order for something to grow anew, sometimes you have to take down the rot and the old things that were blocking the plant from getting sunshine and water, et cetera. So yeah, 
when it comes to red tape, it's just like me taking a millennial approach to my own job where it's like, what are the better tools? Who actually works in this sector? What is the intersects of their knowledge? Because even though I do public policy, I also work heavily in project management principles. So knowing how to marry all the knowledge you gain from like working in retail, security, government, that adds to how you approach user service design. It changes the way that you do your research. So yeah, just investing in more people-focused methods, I think will cut down on the amount of research we do into people and why they do the things they do. Mm -hmm. I think your approach of looking forward has me thinking about digitization. Mm -hmm. And so the, the city does have in place a framework for digitization, but just looking into the future, how do you think we will be able to fund this? And do you think the city of Toronto and just the public service itself is is ready for that, for a heavily digitized network. Well, this is where I like to balance the idea of digitized with accelerated services, because there are certain things that you can just automate in your life without you being taken out of it. And I think about like my, my Google suite, I have a calendar, I have like my slides, docs, and that doesn't mean that I'm not doing work. It just means I can do it more intelligently with my group. So having clouds, like cloud sharing, having different apps, like even vaccine hunters, that didn't replace nurses. It just told you where to find clinics at a faster rate. And this is where we need to balance our expectations with technology. It's only there to help us automate outdated processes. It's not there to replace people. So my approach is digital literacy versus just buying software, because a lot of us are using our data right now with Uber, with Instacart, and a variety of different service providers, but we rarely engage the city about like, hey, how are you using my data to make a better service? We usually just go to social media and we're like, TTC is trash, this is trash. And it's just like, how do those complaints then turn into solutions. And I think there's an opportunity to re-engage public servants in teaching civic literacy with digital tools so that it's more transparent and easier for people to follow policy in plain language and also visualize it. I'm a huge visual person and I just wish that there were more opportunities for storyboarding, for actually creating animation to explain an idea. And that's where I think I would personally like to hire more user experience researchers, more designers, more people from the art community, because when it comes to policy, it's very deep in legalese, but the values that we're all trying to get to can be communicated in a variety of symbols and icons that we all relate to. So yeah, it's just about changing our approach to communication and literacy that will really change our engagement with politics talking about engagement how can we encourage electoral participation in toronto how can we make sure that these people at the very least just go vote well it's um it's a big question <laughs> um if i i'm going to be like fully transparent one of the things that really got me off my butt was i went to a concert after being in indoors for two years i bought these tickets and yeah world shut down and i finally got to go see Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> and their one song, No Shelter, really just got to me because it's like, they sing, there'll be no shelter here because the front line is everywhere. And 
I left that concert just like buzzing and it really just made me realize like this is what I want so bad like being in Toronto having these nights and the only way to have that is to fight for it so it's like when you get that feeling that something is worth fighting for like go for it and we do it all the time when we think about like our academic and professional careers but we rarely think about it during politics and it only cost me $200 and 25 signatures to get on this platform. I could have blown that money on like online shopping or going out to a nightclub or something, but I took it because it was an opportunity to finally get some answers. And unfortunately, John Tory is a very expensive man to chase, but like, look, look at us. <laughs> I didn't think we'd be here, but we are. And it's really encouraging because all it took was two debates for us to expect a higher quality of political discourse. And that's all I wanted for $200. Like it changed the way that we expect politicians to show up. And that is something that I think a lot of us don't get to think about because we're constantly thinking about groceries, loading up that Presto card, but you feel it like in your gut, you feel it in your chest, like something is wrong and you know that you need to do something about it. So like, just do your research and do it. Like, look at us on YouTube and TikTok making content, just do it. Like the energy you save for food service and tourist tourism staff, take that to your politician because a lot of us are just trying to fight the fact that we're earning minimum wage as adults. You know why we're earning minimum wage? Politicians. Like, the quality of life is literally their responsibility and we shouldn't be angry at anyone else but them. And we should be taking to social media to be angry at them because we take that energy with celebrities and strangers all the time, you know? So just my advice to people is like, take that time and reflect on what you want because more often than not, you can actually get it. Like you hustle and grind every day put that pressure on these people that take your tax dollars because what else are they doing except working for you? You know what I mean? You're their boss. And this is the energy I took into the debate. If I was John Tory's boss and this was the performance review, I would talk to him the same way my boss would talk to me if I underperformed, like you need to shape up or ship out Chloe. So take that energy, use it with the right parties and you'll get a lot of stuff done because it's a numbers game for them. The more of us that show up, the more they know that they can't mess around. And we see it in the States where people will show up to politicians' homes. And I'm not suggesting that, but you need to make them take it more seriously because they could have taken any job in the world, but they decided to take a job that takes from your parents' pensions fund. They decided to take a job that takes from your wages, your rent, and all other things. So it's like, Hold them accountable. You hold people that owe you $5 accountable. Hold them even more so because you deserve better leadership. And yeah, that's all I want to remind people. It's just like they work for you. Be a better boss. I think that's a great thought to end on for our listeners. Uh, and I hope they'll take that to heart and go vote because every vote counts. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I hope you have a good one. Cheers. You too. Once again, that was mayoral candidate Chloe Brown. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. 
Many thanks to our guests for joining our Absol on Toronto's municipal election. Today's show was produced by Anna Lazarus. If you like the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a review wherever you listen to the podcast. If you missed any parts of the show, be sure to check out our podcast episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any platform you listen to content on. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.